Now, this morning I invite you to take your Bibles. We want to continue looking at this uh, matter of prayer. We've been in a series called Prayer, Pursuing God in Prayer. And I want you to take your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. And we want to pick up the reading here at verse 12. And we will read through verse 19. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? You follow along as I read. When this had dawned on him, that is Peter, remember he's been in chains in prison. When it dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. In our vernacular, they were blown away. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, <laughs> there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. And after Herod had thoroughly made search for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our minds and our hearts to your truth. Thank you for the privilege of being able to call upon you. And Lord, as we study this text, we see how you miraculously intervened in answer to the prayers of the body of Christ in that first century. And as you answered their prayers, Lord, we believe as we pray that you are still a God who answers prayer and does more for us than we could ever imagine. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Prayer connects us to the power of God. And we need the power of God, especially in the world in which we live, because our world today is filled with conflict and chaos. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of questions. We live in a world that, uh, for many of us, we never believed it could ever happen to us. And so we desperately need the power of God as we navigate these troubled times that are also outstanding times in which we can share our faith. But as we look around us, there are many, many crises. There's a crisis in leadership today in almost every sector of our world. We've just come through another uh, tumultuous election period of time where the rhetoric has been hot and there's been lots of confusion and lots of debate. But it seems like we are struggling to find leaders who actually lead without putting the finger up in the air and wondering which way the wind is blowing. 
We put more confidence today in our polls than we do in our principles. And it's unfortunate that leadership today uh, is so politically correct that we've lost the significance even in our world of right and wrong. It's however the wind blows. We, we, we have lost that sense of having leaders who can truly lead with integrity. Uh, public opinion polls carry greater clout today than personal convictions. And looking good and coming off well seems to be uh, the, the order of the day. And across the board, there seems to be a crisis in leadership. We see this in the education area. Our education is failing our students today. We're getting involved with critical race theory and all these other things that are tearing at the very fabric of our young people today. So there is a crisis in leadership. There's a crisis in the family. The nuclear family no longer is the central unit of society. I remember as a young pastor going and hearing Francis Schaeffer 50 years ago talk about the fact that he projected this is back in the mid-70s. He projected that there would be a time when the nuclear family would be non-existent and that the basic unit of society would become the individual. That's exactly what has happened in our world today. The nuclear family, for the most part, is non-existent. It's a husband and wife and kids that are living together in a, a covenantal relationship, that has... Uh, no longer the central unit of our society. We face abortion and abuse, absentee fathers. We have all kinds of issues related to the family because we have not uh, followed the directions of the Lord Jesus as it relates to making our families a priority. And moral values are disregarded. When was the last time you ever heard anyone talk about morality? Uh, we talk about equality and equity. We talk about all these things. There's very little talk today about morality. And there's a crisis in our cities. Our cities are full of crime and drugs and gangs and violence. Our cities have become war zones. Instead of being a place of safety and refuge, there are people that are living in these cities today and everything's on the edge and it happens even in small towns and rural towns it's sad it's it's a crisis uh, there's a crisis in the church I mean today the crisis in the church is that for many people the church is irrelevant the church doesn't meet their needs the church is floundering before COVID hit on the average year, 4,000 churches will close. Since COVID, that number has now doubled to almost 8,000 churches close every year in America. And those that are surviving, 85 to 90% are plateaued or are declining. So we live in a world where there is a crisis in leadership, in education, in the family, in our cities, and in the church. And we desperately as we live in a world that is filled with this kind of challenge, we, we have to cling to the only one who can give us perspective, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
change and crisis and conflict these are what I call the C words of the 21st century and these words change conflict and crisis describe the environment in which we live every single day it's interesting to discover that the Chinese have two picture word pictures of the word crisis one picture speaks of danger the other word speaks of opportunity in a crisis there is both danger and opportunity indeed the crises of our lives I believe are just incredible opportunities that God wants to use to challenge us and to change us and to make us more like himself there are opportunities for God to reveal to us in the midst of our crises how great and awesome and powerful our God is and that brings us here to Acts chapter 12 the first century church still in its infancy has been facing all kinds of problems and crises and it reaches a <clears throat> climax here in Acts chapter 12 and as we read the first 12 chapters of the book uh, we see how God does some great things how the Holy Spirit comes upon the Apostles and hundreds and thousands of people are one to the Lord Jesus but in response to that there was opposition opposition persecution that scattered the church the church in Jerusalem is fragmented and wherever they go they proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ they are advancing the kingdom and so we come here to Acts chapter 12 and it's really a milestone chapter that unlocks several key insights about the awesome power of God in prayer there are several events that take place in this chapter that I believe bear this out number one we have the persecution factor you see this in verse one it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them there's no doubt about it it cost something to be a Christian in the first century it was not an easy road it cost to identify with Jesus and I believe that the stage is being set for much persecution to come to the 21st century church it's already happening in fact there is more persecution worldwide against the church of Jesus Christ today than at any other period of time and we here in America have been spared from much of this but as you see what is taking place there's going to come a time where we're going to have to declare our colors we cannot blend into the environment any longer Jesus wasn't popular I mean he 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 was ridiculed he was mocked he was scorned he was I mean Christianity has never been a popular movement it's been misunderstood in fact Jesus was crucified and those of us who follow his train it's going to cost us it's very interesting here that this persecution first of all came from the religious establishment it came from those who were in the church or in the synagogue at this point 
It's very interesting as the gospel takes roots in the hearts and lives of people, the religious establishment loses its control over the people. They don't like this. And so we see, for example, in Acts 4, Peter and John are threatened. Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are beaten. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a layman, is martyred. Acts chapter 8 and 9, Christians are scattered everywhere. They are being harassed. They're being persecuted by the religious establishment. This is all throughout the first 12 chapters here in the book of Acts. But when we come to Acts chapter 12, the persecution not only comes from the religious establishment, it comes from the ruling leaders themselves. And you'll note here in verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested those who belonged to the church. The church now is under attack by the ruling authorities, and this particular one who is persecuting them his name is Herod, and he is a madman. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who was king in Palestine, who ruled in Palestine when Jesus was born. And anxious to win the approval of the Jewish hierarchy, Herod now begins to persecute them, verse 1. That word persecute means to afflict them, to harm them, to hurt them. And just as his grandfather could not stand the fact that another king would be born in his territory, so this particular Herod is out to do everything he can now to harass and to hurt and to persecute those who identify with Jesus Christ. You'll remember that this man's whose grandson could not tolerate anyone who possibly could be identified as king. He's equally as arrogant, and he's intolerant of those who preach the gospel. Now, what's interesting about Herod is that he was probably more popular with the Jews than any other religious leader. And the reason was is because he had a meticulous observation of the Jewish law. He followed the Jewish law to the T. For example, here in Acts chapter 12 and verse 4, Peter is taken prisoner, and under normal situations he'd be executed immediately, but you'll notice he's not executed, he is only put into prison. Because according to Jewish law, no trial, no execution could be carried out during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of the Passover. And so instead of killing Peter right out, he only arrests him and throws him in prison, but he puts a 24-hour guard on him. You see, Herod... The Jews were pretty excited about the fact that he had killed James. And so he proceeds now to kill one of, or to harass one of the key spokesmen for the group, Peter. Again, this significantly represents a shift in those that are persecuting God's people. 
It's no longer coming from the religious establishment. It's coming from the secular rulers themselves. And it's now focused primarily on the leadership of the church. The leadership of the church is under attack. James is murdered. And Peter now has been taken captive and placed in chains at Roman fortress. And they do everything they can to make sure Peter does not escape. And you'll notice that he is bound with two chains, verse 8, verse 6, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. In other words, there were two guards that were chained to Peter inside his cell, and then there were other two soldiers on the outside guarding. So he is in basically a maximum security prison. And he, there's no indication as to whenever he would ever be released. And so Herod knows that he has a prize catch. Nothing can stand in his way. And he is convinced that in imprisoning Peter, uh, this again is going to discourage and dissuade the people of God. You talk about facing an impossible situation, put yourself in the shoes of those first century believers. They've witnessed the death and resurrection of Jesus. They've seen what God did on the day of Pentecost and through Peter's incredible evangelistic message, more than 3,000 come to faith in Christ. They've seen the church grow, but along with the growth has been this affliction, this persecution that comes from the religious establishment. It comes from the ruling leaders, and it focuses its attention on the leadership of the church. If you'd have been in that situation, you'd have felt like, there was no way out. You were going to be next. But what does the church do in a situation like this? Do they protest? Do they get mad and argue that all this is unfair? No. They don't panic. To the contrary, notice in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison. Put a circle around the phrase, but the church. Whenever you see this, but the church, it tells us that something very significant is happening. But the church was earnestly praying for Peter. Let me put it this way. When God wants to do something great in our lives as his people, he always begins with an impossibility. And... These early believers at this time are facing something that they never could have anticipated. They had never encountered before. Yes, the religious establishment has been after them. Now the ruling leaders are after them. And they are zeroing in on the leadership of the church. And you can imagine there was a lot of anxiety and angst that they were experiencing. But instead of allowing that to control them, they fell on their faces before God in prayer. Now friends, when we fall on our faces in absolute dependence on God in prayer, we can stand up to anything the enemy throws at us. Why is it that so often when we face these kind of crises, we try to handle it on our own? We try to figure it out. Many of us, oftentimes, uh, we'll even react to things and we'll get caught up in all the, the drama instead of really praying and seeking God. But that was not the case with the early church. 
their first response was not to trust themselves to figure out what they needed to do next. Their first response is to trust God. And they tap into his limitless supply and experience answers that are beyond anything they could have ever imagined. When we face situations that threaten and intimidate us, and sometimes cause us to wallow in doubt and fear, we need to model this response of the early church. They simply pray. They fall on their face. They know that there is something about prayer that links them to the power of God, and His power is limitless. I don't know what you are facing this morning that is an impossibility in your life. Maybe a situation at work that seems impossible. It may be a personality conflict with a friend. It may be a physical problem which has come upon you unexpectedly. Maybe it's something else that has happened to one of your kids or to your mate that seems to be an impossible situation and it steals your joy. I've got good news for you this morning. No matter what the impossibility is that we are facing, it is no match for our God. And that is why we have to turn to Him immediately when the crises and challenges of life come. I believe if we as God's people would unite together across this country and there would be a massive prayer movement, a lot of the wrongs that we experience in our world could be righted. But we have to be men and women of prayer. Now, this takes us to the prayer meeting. The prayer meeting was very interesting because you see it here and it's described in verse 5. Peter was kept in prison. He's got these guards inside and outside his cell. He's changed two guards. It looks like he's going to be there for some time. But the early church prays, but I want you to underscore this in your mind. They pray with purpose. They pray with purpose. They're not just mounting empty platitudes and pious expressions. They're communicating with God. They are pouring out their hearts to the one who has given them life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we study this particular verse, we discover that first of all, the early church prays earnestly. Notice, but the church was earnestly praying for him. You could translate that word, they are praying diligently or fervently. The original language translates that verb, they prayed outstretchedly. Probably the best English word to describe the word uh, earnest here is they prayed with intensity. There was intensity. Uh, they recognized their total helplessness. They had no other place to go. There's nothing else that they can do. I mean, protesting wouldn't have helped. Getting mad wouldn't have helped. They have absolutely no other place to go but to God in prayer. And friends, when we get to the end of all of our human resources and all we have left is God, we will make an incredible discovery that God is enough. I want to say that one more time. When we get to the end of all of our human resources and all we have left is God, we will make the discovery personally in our lives that God is enough. 
It's interesting to discover that that word earnest is the very same word that described the agony of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about this last week. It says they prayed earnestly, and in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, as we spoke about it last Sunday, the text reads, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. The very same word that is used of Christ's prayer as he wrestles with his will and the Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane is the very same word that is used to describe what this church... That, what the church is praying they're earnestly praying there's intensity it has nothing to do with the loudness <laughs> doesn't mean that they were screaming at God doesn't mean that they were wordy it, it speaks of the fact that they were putting their heart into prayer R.A. Torrey one of the great evangelists of another generation was right on when he said in his book on prayer quote much of our modern prayer has no power because it has no heart in it. We rush into God's presence, run through a string of petitions, and go out. When we put so little heart into prayer, we cannot expect God to much, put much heart into answering them." Unquote. This church prays with intensity. They pray from their heart. They are desperate. When was the last time that we've been desperate for God? I mean, really desperate. This church prays because they are in that state. They are desperate for God. Only God can meet them now. Number two, they pray unitedly. Notice it says... The church, speaking of the body of Christ, Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, I'd rather be opposed by an army than 100 believers praying, unquote. In Matthew 18, 19, and 20, the Bible says that when two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, when God lays that same burden on the hearts of just two or three people, that is a moment for God to release his irresistible power. That text reads this, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together or are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. It's interesting as you study uh, the language here, that word agree is used specifically of instruments that are in harmony with each other. In fact, our English word symphony comes from this word that is translated agree. Where there is an agreement of sounds in a symphony, there is wonderful music. And as the church prays, and every one of them is praying with intensity, there is a beautiful symphony. They're all agreeing. A symphony of prayer is being raised to God. And as we shall soon see, God heard that symphony from their heart. 
Number three, they pray directly. Notice they pray to God. We are praying to God. The early church focuses on God. Their minds are not wandering. Their minds are not preoccupied with the problems of yesterday or the challenges of today. They are not rehashing all the things that have gone on in their lives. They have a singular focus. Their focus is on God. They pray to God. It's directed to God. And again, their focus is so singular because they have such a great need. You see, when we are really on our face before God and we're absolutely desperate, it's usually then and then only where our focus is completely upon God. And in times of crisis, it makes all the difference in the world where our gaze is fixed. If our gaze is fixed that what's happening around us will be perplexed. If we look behind us, we'll be depressed. But when we look up, when we fall on our face before God, we will find a friend in whom we can confide and who understands us like no one else can. I... I have to confess to you there have been very few times when I have prayed this way this this is a prayer of intensity they are at the very end of their rope they don't know what to do but their confidence is in the living God and sometimes I fear that our prayers are so mechanical that we do not understand the power that comes when we unite our hearts together around one specific request and are praying for God to work. We need to tell God what's on our heart. I think sometimes we hold back. The 17th century Roman Catholic theologian Fenelon put it this way, quote, Tell God all that is on your heart as one unloads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains, to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others. How vanity tempts you to become insincere. How pride disguises you to yourself and to, your, and to others, unquote. We need to be brutally honest in our prayers. And then fourthly, the church prays specifically. Notice, they were earnestly praying to God 
for him, for Peter. They pray for Peter, who's now in chains. He's incarcerated in a Roman prison. He's been placed in a maximum security section of the prison. They pray specifically for someone that they know. I think one of the things that builds intensity in our prayer is when we are praying for people that we know and that we love. And the early church loved Peter. He was the one that God was using in an incredible way. He preaches this great evangelistic message in Acts chapter 2 and thousands come to repentance. They see how the resurrection has totally transformed his life and how God is using him in ways that Peter never anticipated. Yes, this is the one who denied Jesus. But now through the resurrection, God is using Peter as never before. And there's a freshness and there's a spontaneity in their prayers that we desperately need to recapture when we're praying for specific requests. They know Peter. They're praying specifically for him. And when Peter is in trouble, they come to his aid in specific prayer. I want to encourage you to keep a prayer list of people you're praying for by name. Keep it in the front of your Bible. Intercede for them regularly. Reach out to people that you're praying for and let them know you're praying for them. Pray for the unsaved. Pray for your neighbors that are lost. Start naming them and asking God to begin to open up opportunities for you to share the gospel with them. I'm convinced that many times we can answer our own prayers if we will simply be sensitive to the nudges of the Holy Spirit. We need to pray that the prayer that Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3.1. He prayed that the word of God would run through the community. That the word of God would just saturate the community and he would smash the strongholds of the enemy. This is how we are to pray. And then lastly, notice, the early church prays perseveringly. You jump down to verse 12, where it says, where many people had gathered together and were praying. The tense is present. They continued on praying. They prayed on into the night. We don't know exactly when that prayer meeting started, but they had been in earnest praying, praying for a number of hours for Peter. They weren't conscious of the time. It's very interesting that as you study the prayer life of the early church, <clears throat> when they got on their face before God, time did not matter. I mean, we here in our culture today, we could spend hours on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram. We can spend hours watching cable TV. And yet when we're in a small group to pray, I mean, if we spend five minutes, we, we, get, we, we get nervous. It's interesting, is it not? That 
that whenever we get together to pray, the sense is, well, let's hurry up and pray. Let's, let's, it's, it's like prayer is some kind of an obligation we have to go through rather than really understanding that God calls the church to pray with intensity, not worrying about the time element. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of being in Korea. Went to the all-night prayer meetings of the Korean church. Most of the churches in Korea, a number of them, I won't say most, but a number of them, are churches that have two, three, four hundred thousand members. They have a practice of spending eight hours in prayer every day. To be part of a small group, you have to spend time in prayer. We arrived late at night, probably about one o'clock in the morning, and we went to this all-night prayer meeting. I thought there would be just a handful of people there. This was in one of their smaller auditoriums, seated at about 1,500. The place was packed. Little kids were sleeping on the benches. The whole families were there. They were pouring out there. There was just a symphony. I have never seen anything like it in my life. And then we wonder why God is blessing that church. It's because of their prayer life. It's because of the fact that they understand that when they, they are reaching out to God in prayer, that they actually are believing what they're praying. They're believing that God's going to do something spectacular. They're believing that God's going to answer their prayer. And they spend the whole night there. Same thing goes on in the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. They have all-night prayer meetings. It's amazing. Jim Cimbala and that whole group. Tuesday night prayer meeting. Places packed. And they just pray. Praying specifically. The bottom line is simply this. We can never let up. <laughs> we all need to pray even when we don't feel like praying. And we need to persevere at it. And then lastly, and I'll hustle up and finish this off. <coughs> Excuse me, the prison escape. They're praying and then the escape takes place. Look at verse 7. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and the light shone in the cell. He struck down, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Now, can you imagine this? He's been chained to these guards for a long period of time. He's in a dark cell. All of a sudden, boom, suddenly an angel appears. A bright light shines in the prison. And his chains fall off. I mean, this is a supernatural response of God to the prayers of God's people. And what's amazing to me... <laughs> Peter doesn't know when he's about to be executed. But while all this is going on, Peter is sleeping. He's sleeping between the guards. And that speaks of the peace that Peter had. He's a condemned man. He's ready to be executed. And yet, he's, he's not twisting and turning he doesn't act like a condemned man. He is just fast asleep. He's not blasting the guards with obscenities. 
He's not pacing up and down his cell like a madman. No, Peter is sleeping. And this kind of peace, I believe, is only possible through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 puts it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, catch the relationship. The church is wrestling in prayer. The church is wrestling in prayer for Peter. There's intensity. And Peter is resting. <laughs> He's fast asleep. So, we see the peace of Peter. Number two, we see the power of deliverance. Now, it's very interesting if you'll notice in verse 7. And following, the angel comes and shows, shines a great light. He strikes Peter on the side and wakes him up. Quick, get up. Then notice, he says, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap a cloak around you and follow me. Now put yourself, have you ever been awakened out of a dead sleep? Are you, you, you're kind of disoriented. And he's given all these commands. Peter followed him out of the prison. Notice, <laughs> he had no idea what the angel was doing. Was really happening. He thought I was seeing a vision. Then they passed the first and second guards, these guards. And the guards didn't even stop them. They just passed by them. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened them, it opened to, the, to them by itself. That's a huge iron gate. It just all of a sudden opens up. I mean, you talk about miraculous things happening. They walk through it. And once Peter walked down the street a little way, then the angel disappears it's incredible the power of deliverance and in verse 9 Peter's in a state of shock he thinks he's been dreaming but in verse 11 once that cool breeze hits his face he says hey something's different I'm no longer in chains I'm no longer in the prison and in verse 12 he goes to the place where he knew didn't this tell you something about the relationships in the early church Peter's in prison but he knows that God's people are praying for him and where does he go he goes to the place where he knows they're in prayer they're gathered together praying for him and what follows is kind of a mixture of confusion and joyful humor one commentator says it must have led to hilarity every time it was repeated among the believers Peter goes and he knocks on the door Rhonda, she comes in, and Rhoda, she comes in, and she recognizes his voice, and she's so excited. Hey, this is Peter. She doesn't open the door to let him in. She runs back and says, hey, Peter's here. This is the one we've been praying for. He's here. And how does the church respond in verse 15? Well, praise God. Man, we have been praying for this all night. Thank the Lord, Peter's been released. What did they say to her? Rhoda, you're out of your mind. What's the matter with you? What's the, what? I mean, are, are, you, are you not speaking the truth? Or what's the, and notice, she had to do a lot of insisting. When she kept in insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. 
Now, all the time this is happening, Peter's out there knocking. I bet he had sore knuckles by the time the night was over. He's just knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were, what, astonished. Leads us to the question, do we believe what we are praying for? Do we really believe what we are asking God to do? They've been asking all night for Peter's release. And when God intervenes and does something absolutely incredible, they're astonished. Peter, he, he just motions and he says, okay, let me, let, me, let me explain to you what's happened. Verse 17, Peter motioned with his hand to be quiet and described, notice how the Lord had brought him out of prison. It wasn't something that he had done. It was something that God had done for him. And then you see the potency of prayer in verse 17. Actually, I've already read that passage where Peter motioned to them. And they understand that the power of God's presence is absolutely beyond anything they could ever understand. They have been eyewitnesses to a dramatic miracle of God. And notice what happens in the morning following, in the next morning. I love the way Luke describes it. He says, there was no small commotion among the soldiers. What happened to Peter? I thought he was in, you know, secure quarters. What's, what's happened? How did he get out? In fact, Herod is so upset he makes a thorough search. They couldn't find Peter. They cross-examined the guards. Hey, what happened to you guys? I thought you were chained to him. What, did you let him go? What, what's, what's taking place? And because they couldn't come up with an answer, the guards are executed. Why? Because according to Roman culture, if a prisoner ever escaped, those that were guarding him were executed in his place. But you see, this all happened because God's people, in the moment of their desperation, turned to God. That leads me to three concluding thoughts number one I believe sometimes God answers our prayers before we finished praying them these people are in earnest before God and God answers even while they are speaking there's another passage in Isaiah that says, while we are yet speaking, God answers our prayers. That's why it's so important to have a focus upon him. Number two, there are times when God is silent. But he is not still. Sometimes we think that God doesn't hear us because he doesn't answer us in the way we would like. But in silence, God is still at work. And then number three, we need to turn to God not as a 
last resort, but as our first response. Prayer is the key that unlocks the powerhouse of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to lean in to God every single day. The crises, the challenges, the burdens of life are too great for any of us to carry alone. Prayer is our only resource. Let's stand together, shall we? for closing prayer. Father in heaven, we're reminded this morning that as your people, we cannot neglect the storehouses of your power. Prayer, mighty prayer, is the need of the hour. And as the old songwriter put it, oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have tried to handle the crises and the impossibilities of life in our own strength only to miserably fail. Lord, I pray for every person in this room right now that whatever the impossibility is, whatever the crisis is, whatever the situation is that is tearing at their hearts and pulling them down, that they would clothe themselves with the armor of God and with prayer. Oh God, prayer moves mountains. Prayer does for us what we could never ever do, to our, do for ourselves. And so, Lord, in these moments, may we come to that settled conviction that we are going to pray specifically for needs in our lives and in the lives of our family. We're going to have a close focus upon you. We're going to pray with the heart, with intensity. And we're going to pray with believing faith. Oh God, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises of God that hold us steady in a world that is swirling around us with not many answers. Our hope, our confidence is in you and in you alone. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. And good morning. And Maranatha, lo, he comes. Have a great day in Jesus. <laughs>